Well, the reading is from Hebrews chapter 11, from the beginning of the chapter, and in fact, up to verse 13. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for, and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks, even though he is dead. <clears throat> by faith, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. <clears throat> By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. <coughs> and so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. Thanks, Roger. Hebrews 11, it's, a, it's an amazing reading. In fact, if uh, I could have had more time, we'd have had the whole of chapter 11 uh, of Hebrews. So do uh, go home and read that whole chapter. It's like a roll of honor of the people of faith from the Bible. So through this term in our evening services, we're going to ex be exploring some of the big themes uh, that run through the Bible. Themes like kingdom, priest, sacrifice, covenant. Uh, so do come along to our evening services. They're going to uh, enrich our theology and help us learn more about how to live for Jesus today. 
But before we get to these specific themes that we're going to be exploring, we thought it'd be helpful to do uh, an overview of the whole Bible. Uh, Now, for many of us, our encounters of the Bible will have been perhaps uh, at Sunday school when we were little, or in school, or in, um, in our Bible story books that we might have had as children, or just things that we've learned as we've gone along through life, as we've encountered certain Bible characters, the Bible characters uh, that, that, that are sort of memorable, uh, people like Moses and Noah and these sorts of people. But we don't always see these individual stories of faith as part of God's big plan and his purposes that weave their way through the whole of history and time. And we don't necessarily see how these individuals help draw together the 66 books that make up the Bible that we have today. And so, for about the next 25 minutes, that might be optimistic, we'll see how we get on, we're going to go through a whistle-stop tour of some of the main characters, not everybody you'll be pleased to know, in the whole of the Bible. We're going to discover some of these incredible people of faith who love God, people who were obedient to God, and people who were downright disobedient to him as well, people who God spoke to and worked through and transformed people who were bringing in God's divine purposes, and some who, frankly, caused absolute havoc in the land. And this is our, like, family album. It's like our family photo album. And it's our album as people of God today. So let's just pray. Jesus, we thank you uh, that you are with us. Thank you that we can stand here and worship you, that we can proclaim who you are. And thank you that we know who you are because of your word. We thank you that for centuries, uh, people have held this book as sacred. That, Lord, people have taken care uh, to keep it as it is. Thank you that you speak to us today. And I pray that as we go on this whistle-stop tour through the Bible, that you would speak into our lives through the power of your Holy Spirit, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen. Okay, so you'll see I've got my beautiful assistants, John and Gemma, um, and I've got a washing line, and all become clear because I think I'm quite a visual learner, and so I thought it'd be helpful if we actually string up the characters of the Bible across our washing line. So we might have to pull it down a little bit uh, so that Gemma can reach because she's not as tall as I am. Sorry, Gemma. Uh, So we're going to start right at the beginning. It's a funny place to start. Uh, So here we are at the beginning. We're at creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and God saw that it was good. God saw what he created, and he said, it is good and it is beautiful. He created the first man and the first woman, who we have named in the Bible as Adam and Eve. And everything in creation reflected God, including man and woman who God gives control over the earth to. And and one command, he says, don't eat of that one tree, of the fruit of the tree of good and evil. But as we know, Adam and Eve are tempted and they eat of the fruit. And this is the fall, the bringing of sin into the world. So now not everything is good and not everything is beautiful. And we see this lived out through Cain and Abel, who are Adam and Eve's sons. 
In faith, we heard in our Bible reading that Abel offered a sacrifice to God and God saw that that sacrifice was a better, more pleasing sacrifice to him. And so in his jealousy, Cain, his brother, kills Abel. It's the first murder in the Bible. Now, Adam and Eve have another son. We don't really know much about this other son, but we do know that he is called Seth. And his descendant is a guy called Noah. Now, we've heard of Noah, haven't we? Uh, Put your hand up if you've heard of Noah. Keep your hand up if you know the story of Noah. Okay, who would like to tell us the story of Noah in 10 seconds? (laughs) Story of Noah in 10 seconds. I'm not going to go for Josh. Tell us the story of Noah in 10 seconds. I'm hoping this is on. Go. He builds a big boat, fills it with animals, world floods. It's all good. (laughs) Why? That wasn't quite 10 seconds. Why? Why did God choose Noah? Because he was a decent chap. Because he was a decent chap when not many other people were decent. And what was the sign that God gave at the end when they all came out of the ark? Anybody here want to tell us? He gave us a rainbow, brilliant. 10 points for the people on the front row for their knowledge of Noah. Okay, so one of Noah's sons is called Shem and he has a descendant called Abram. And so now we enter the time which is known as the time of the patriarchs. The patriarchs are the big fathers, the sort of big figures in Jewish history. God has a big plan. He's going to establish a chosen people, a people who will be his. And it starts with Abraham. And it sounds brilliant, doesn't it? God promises Abraham that he is going to establish a chosen people, a nation, through this guy, Abraham. And it sounds great until you realize that Abraham and Sarai are ancient and they don't have any children. And they think it's hysterical. How on earth is God going to establish a nation through them when they don't even have any kids? But God insists that Abraham and Sarai will have a son. And in the meantime, uh, God changes their names to Abraham and Sarah. And eventually, Sarah gives birth to a son called Isaac. Now, God has begun to fulfill his promise that he will establish a people through Abraham. And because this is a two-way relationship between God and his people, he gives the people, Abraham's family, a physical sign that they belong to him and he belongs to, to them. And that is the sign of circumcision. And after this time, all the Jewish males are circumcised. And in fact, today, you find that Jews still are circumcised. Isaac grows up and he finds himself a wife, as you can see, called Rebecca. And she gives birth to twins called Jacob and Esau. Now, Jacob is a bit of the mummy's boy in the family. Uh, and Esau is your archetypal man's man. He likes to go hunting. He's a hairy sort of gorilla sort of guy. Um, and as the firstborn, Esau has the, the birthright. He has the blessing of his father, Jacob. He will inherit but Jacob is jealous. He wants that birthright that belongs rightly to Esau. And so Jacob pretends to be his brother Esau and he steals his father's blessing. And then he goes off and runs away into the hills. And Jacob, uh, when he's running in the hills, he meets Rachel. 
He falls in love with Rachel. She's obviously beautiful. It's love at first sight at a well. Uh, He falls in love with her and he works for, for Rachel's father for seven years so that he can have her hand in marriage. In a pretty horrendous twist, he is tricked at that moment when they're stood at the altar or wherever they stood in those days. He's tricked into marrying her big sister, Leah, because actually the family think, oh, well, she can't get married before her because she's the older sister and she needs to get married first. So they trick uh, Jacob and he ends up marrying Leah. He's absolutely gutted and traumatized, as you would be if you just married the wrong person. And so he works for another seven years uh, for for Rachel's father so that he can then marry uh, Rachel. And so he ends up with two wives who are sisters. Now, Rachel and uh, Leah don't have the best relationship and they fight over Jacob. After all, Rachel loves Jacob and Jacob loves Rachel and Leah's just an accident. But anyway, they decide that God has a bigger plan. You'll be pleased to know. And they decide that whoever has the most children are going to win. It's like a competition between Rachel and Leah. And they start getting their maid servants involved in this competition. And, uh, and, and Rachel can't produce any children, but Leah goes on to, to have uh, 10 children. And she's winning. She's winning that competition until eventually Rachel gives birth to a son called Joseph. Joseph starts to ring some bells for us here. Joseph of Technicolor Dreamcoat fame. Joseph, the firstborn of Rachel, Jacob's favorite wife. Now, Joseph is a bit of a show-off, and so in their jealousy, the other brothers, the brothers uh, that belong to Leah, the half-brothers, sell Joseph into Egyptian slavery. Um, Joseph finds himself in prison uh, due to a false accusation. But God is faithful to Joseph. And Joseph knows that God is with him. Eventually, Joseph finds his way out of prison by interpreting dreams and becomes second in command in the whole of Egypt. Uh, There is a famine, and during that famine in Egypt, his family turn up, he's reunited to his family, and they all relocate into Egypt. In Egypt, the descendants of Abraham, Joseph, and all his brothers begin to multiply and increase. God's promise that a great nation would come from the seed of Abraham is starting to happen. These people, these descendants of Abraham, become known as the Israelites, and they're divided into 12 tribes based on Joseph and his 11 brothers, because Rachel's gone on to have another son as well, based on the sons of Jacob and Rachel and Leah. But there's a big problem, because The Pharaoh who appointed Joseph was right on side and loved having all these people uh, and welcomed them into his land. But a different Pharaoh had come into power and he was threatened by the people of Israel and he puts the whole nation of of Israel into slavery. Eventually, God hears the cries of the people of Israel and so he decides to raise up a leader from among the Israelite people and that person is Moses. Now, Moses is a reluctant leader, but he's eventually persuaded uh, to go uh, before the king, to ask uh, him to let his people go. 
after the town plagues and after the first Passover, when the angel of death passes over the houses of the Jewish people, but actually ends up killing the firstborn Egyptian males. The king eventually decides to let the Israelite people go from Egypt. Egypt. We have the mass exodus from Egypt and the parting of the Red Sea. And at last, the people of Israel, God's people, are heading towards the promised land. But it takes them 40 years to get there. On the way, God makes a covenant, a promise between himself and his people, the people of Israel. And it's called the law. And included in the law is the Ten Commandments. He gives, he gives these laws about how to live in relationship with him, how to atone for sin by using animal sacrifices, how to be holy, how to worship him. And in the desert, the, the people of Israel construct what they call the tabernacle, which is like a, a glorified tent. And they place inside the tabernacle the ark. Uh, and inside the ark are the stone tablets containing the Ten Commandments. Essentially, it's like God in a box to the people of Israel. And they see it as a visual reminder that God is with them. God is amongst them. His presence is there and won't leave them as long as that God in a box is there. But it's not Moses who takes the people of Israel into the land that he has promised them, the promised land. But it's Joshua, his successor. God brings down the walls of Jericho in a dramatic fashion to let his people through into the land. Then comes a whole series of conquests to allow the Israelites to have the land that God has promised them all along. The Israelites settle in this land, uh, which is divided between the 12 tribes of Israel. Remember the 12 tribes that come from Joseph and his brothers, the children of Jacob, Rachel, and Leah. But when Joshua dies, conflict begins to rage between these 12 tribes of Israel. And this is the time of the judges. And it's summed up by this phrase at the end of the book of Judges. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did as they saw fit. The people of Israel are getting caught in a vicious cycle. We read it in the book of Judges. The people turn from God. God sends a foreign power, a foreign nation to punish them. The people cry out to God. God sends them a judge, somebody to deliver them, a leader to deliver them from the hands of this foreign nation. But then they turn back again to their own ways. They worship false idols. They do their own thing. And the cycle repeats itself all the way through the book of Judges. So here we encounter judges like Deborah. Now, Deborah is an absolute legend, if you want to read about her. There are some of the most gory stories in the whole of the Bible in the book of Judges. Um, it's quite entertaining at times and quite gruesome at others. But anyway, Deborah is the only female uh, judge. She's an incredible leader and prophet in that time. Time. We have people like Gideon, who's a really reluctant uh, leader. When God calls him, he just doesn't quite believe it and puts out all these tests to God to, to, so God can actually prove to him that he really wants him to lead the people. But eventually, even he uh, messes up and ends up worshipping some false idols. We get people like Samson with the long hair and Delilah, uh, who learn all about how their strength is given uh, from God. They learn, he learns that his strength and his power and his leadership is from God. And during the time of the judges, we also come across the character of Ruth. Uh, Ruth is an incredible woman of faith. 
Uh, Ruth marries Boaz, and, and they actually have a son called Obed. And he has a significant grandchild who is called David, and we'll get to him a bit later on. Into this time of complete instability steps a man called Samuel. Samuel um, was somebody who was a gift from God right at the beginning. Samuel's mum is called Hannah, and Hannah longed for a child, and she prays to God for a long time that she might have a child. Eventually, she gives birth to a son called Samuel, who, who Hannah has promised back to God. Samuel grows up uh, in the temple with Eli, and he is a man of God. He is a faithful man, a prophet, and the last of the judges. And even though Samuel was a great leader and a man after God's heart, the people want a king. And so Samuel anoints a king for them, a king called Saul. Now, Saul is a pretty uh, rubbish king and disobeys God. Uh, and so Samuel goes out looking for a new king. Uh, he ends up at the house of, of Jesse. And there, God points out that even though there are all these really fantastic-looking older brothers, actually, the one he wants to be king is David, the young shepherd boy who was out in the fields, who happens to be the great-great-grandson of Ruth and Boaz that we talked about a few moments ago. He wants David, the unexpected one, to be king. And David grows up and becomes king, and despite many mistakes, he was a leader who God worked through incredibly, because ultimately David was somebody who was able to be vulnerable before God. He allowed God to know him from the inside out. He was somebody who had a deep faith in God. Under David's son, Solomon, the temple in Jerusalem is built. The kingdom of Israel at this point is united. There is one king, there is one temple, and there is one God. There is one king, one temple, and one God. But not for long. Because soon the, the, the kingdom splits uh, into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom, which was called Israel, just to confuse everybody. And the southern kingdom, which was called Judah, which is where the temple was. Now the kings of these kingdoms were pretty disobedient to God. They lack faith, they worship false idols, and it's pretty much carnage a lot of the time, of the time of the kings. And so God raises up prophets during this time to steer people into God's ways. People like Elijah, who I'm sure you've heard of. Elijah takes on uh, uh, the king of the time, King Ahab, and his Baal-worshipping wife uh, called Jezebel. Elijah has an incredibly strong faith, and God is victorious. But despite God calling numerous prophets, uh, and the prophets doing this incredible job of, of calling the kings and the people back into line with him, Eventually, both of the kingdoms of Israel are captured by foreign powers, and the people of Israel are deported from the land that God had given them. They're taken into what we call exile. They are now no longer one temple, one God, one king. They are a broken nation, a broken people, and really importantly to them, they're away from their temple the temple which is central to their culture, their worship, and their identity. And Daniel is one of the young people who finds himself in exile in a place called Babylon. But he is a young man with an incredibly unwavering faith. And he has incredible integrity as well. 
And so when he won't bow down to worship the golden statue that the king has made for himself and commanded everybody they must worship, he's thrown in to the den of lions that we all know about. But God breaks into that horrendous situation and rescues him and shows that he is all-powerful. And so the people find that even in exile, even when they're away from their land and their temple, God is faithful. They find that God is still with them. Eventually, the Persians defeat the Babylonians and the Jews are allowed to return from exile to Jerusalem. And eventually, uh, due to their faithfulness, uh, some of the prophets, people like Ezra and like Nehemiah, uh, under prophets like these, the temple is rebuilt. But it's not in the same way. It's not back to its former glory under the time of David and Solomon and people like that. And so the people are despondent and they're waiting. They're waiting for a Messiah. They're waiting for a rescuer. And they see in the words of prophets like Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah, they hear hints of a rescuer. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up to David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. And they read things like uh, from the prophet Malachi. Uh, They read prophecies about an arrival of a Messiah. See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. Malachi 3 verse 1. The people are waiting for their Messiah, their rescuer. But 400 years pass and nothing happens. We can see up to this point that the story of Israel is peppered with people of faith. Many of those incredible people of faith are mentioned throughout the book of he, the, the chapter uh, that we heard from Hebrews 11. In the end of Hebrews 11, we read this verses 39 to 40. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they become made perfect. 400 years. And then the voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him, begins to be heard. Here comes John, John the Baptist, announcing the arrival of the Messiah. Now, John's mum, Elizabeth, has a young cousin called Mary, uh, who is engaged to Joseph. And incidentally, uh, Joseph was a descendant of King David. Uh, Now, Mary finds out she's pregnant, as we know, by the Spirit of God. And despite the pretty traumatic circumstances, uh, both Mary and Joseph are faithful to what God is calling them to do. And the baby is born. And the baby is called Jesus. The name Jesus comes from the Jewish name that we know as Joshua. Look back on our timeline. We find there the name Joshua. And Joshua to the Jewish people would be synonymous with being led into the promised land, being led from a place of wilderness, wandering in the desert, having escaped from Egypt, into the promised land. Where will this Joshua, where will this Jesus take God's people? 
But Jesus is not the Messiah everybody is expecting. He's not princely or powerful or prestigious, but he's humble and he's compassionate. He's a servant and he suffers. Jesus speaks. He speaks words of controversy, of wisdom, of power, and of love. He teaches, and he teaches people to pray. He speaks to the spiritually malnourished, uh, to the loved and the unlovely. And he tells stories that stick in people's minds, that make sense, that are relevant, that challenge, that encourage, and that have incredible wisdom within them and godly love flowing through them. And he takes the law, the law that the people of Israel have known all this time, and he says, this is what it's all about. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. And Jesus does miracles. He turns water into wine. He heals people. He restores people to wholeness. He has power over creation. And every day around him, resurrection happens. The woman bleeding for 12 years, barred from holiness, barred from community, is healed and cleansed and receives resurrected life. The tax collector who climbs the tree comes down a different person. Jesus is holy, but he hangs out with normal people. He gathers around him 12 disciples, 12 friends, and also he has hundreds and hundreds of other followers, other disciples who follow him around, desperate to hear from him, desperate to hear what he has to say and what he's going to do. But who is he? And it's the disciple Peter who nails it when he declares this, you, Jesus, are the Messiah the Son of God. And then the Son of God is killed. He's not just killed, but he's he's crucified, the most humiliating, the most degrading, the most painful and tortuous death that you could imagine. And his followers, his disciples are devastated. The one they had been waiting all these years for, the one who would take them uh, through all these ups and downs of the future, the one who they've waited for through the ups and downs of their history, the one that they thought was the rescuer, the one they hoped might save them, the wonderful counselor, the prince of peace, the mighty God, was gone. But not for long, because the grave couldn't hold the king. He rises from the dead, and over the next 40 days, he's seen by over 500 different people alive. And when Jesus ascends into heaven, he promises that he will return as well. And the disciples are gathered in Jerusalem waiting to see what happens, wondering what's going to happen next, and they're filled with the Holy Spirit. And people start to join the disciples as followers of Jesus. Peter and another disciples, John, are leading the apostles. And God continues to heal and to restore. And many more people join them and start to follow Jesus. After the killing of Stephen, who's the first martyr in the Bible, uh, a young leader who's accused of blasphemy for claiming Jesus is God, uh, Saul, a guy who is a jealous jealous Jew, uh, sets out to, to pursue and to persecute the followers of Jesus who begin to be known as Christians. But on his way to Damascus, he encounters Jesus on that road, and he undergoes a massive uh, transformation, a massive conversion. And over time, his name changes to Paul, who we know. And Paul becomes one of the most foremost missionaries in the early church. And as the good news begins to spread, non-Jews, 
who we know as Gentiles, start to become Christians too. Not just people who are part of this family, this great nation, but other people as well. Barnabas becomes a key church planter too. And Paul and Barnabas and all the original disciples uh, start to face huge persecution as they travel around uh, the nation of Israel and further afield as well into the other, the other parts of the known world to take the gospel of Jesus far and wide. And it's their faith in the saving power of Jesus which drives them and sustains them, which they know is their salvation. Now, Paul is a big thinker. And as he battles to enable the Gentiles, the people who aren't Jews, uh, to be accepted as full Christians, he knows that it's not about following the law of the, or, or the temple sacrifices that save you. But he knows that it's about faith in Jesus which saves you. This is a massive change for all these people who have believed over time that being faithful to God is about following the law and going through the process of sacrifices and keeping holy. Jesus' death and resurrection has broken down the barriers between God and humanity. God made a promise between himself and Abraham. You will be my people and I will be your God. And through Jesus, that promise is available to all humanity. You can be my people, and I can be your God, he says. We all now, because of Jesus, can be restored into relationship with our creator God, our heavenly father through <laughs> Jesus. And when Jesus returns, he promises that creation will be restored as well. He says, there will be a new heaven and there will be a new earth where he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making all things new. God says, I am the alpha and I am the omega. I am the first and I am the last. I am the beginning and the end. This is the same God the God of our yesterdays, our today, and our tomorrows.